Hope is one of the strongest forces on earth. Hope can bring about tremendous results. People who believe and have hope can accomplish great things. Now, the opposite of hope is hopelessness. And those who are hopeless, they feel there is no future. They feel that nothing can change. There is no reason to dream of something better. There's no reason to have any ambition. When someone is hopeless, they learn to to live with their problems. They they learn to accept life the way that it is. They they never strive for more. Hopelessness it, and, and pessimism, it demoralizes us. It makes us cynical and despondent and discouraged. Hopelessness will send us into depression and even despair if it's not counteracted at some point. Hope is the opposite of this. When we are filled with hope, we can look into the future, no matter how bad things are now, and we can believe that things can change and things can get better. I read something years ago that said suicides dramatically increase during the holiday season. Hopelessness abounds, it seems, during this time of the year. I think for some, the hopelessness comes from being alone. I think for some, the hopelessness comes from the end of the year reminding him of the things that they did not accomplish that they wanted to accomplish. For some, hopelessness comes from thinking their life has no real meaning. Another year has come, another year has gone, and they've not really done anything significant or impactful in the world around them. And I guess hopelessness could come from any number of reasons. But regardless of why someone feels hopeless, the results are the same. It still always leads to depression. It always leads to despondency. It always leads to an acceptance of the status quo for our lives. But for Christians, this season should be the most hopeful time of the year. This is the time when we remember our birth, the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. What would it look like for us to live in hope because Jesus has come? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. That's page 781 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Luke 2 and 1. I'm sorry, Luke. Yeah, Luke 2 and 1. My Bible was not in Luke 2 and 1, so it didn't look right. Okay, Luke 2 and 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." 
And suddenly there was with the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. The title of the message today is Take Courage, the Savior has come. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come this morning with a desire to be strengthened in our hope. We come this morning with a desire to be drawn closer to you. We come this morning with a desire to meet with you, to have you speak into our hearts, to draw us to a place where we would be more like Jesus. Father, we want to go out into a world of darkness and shine brightly for Jesus. We want people to see Jesus in our attitudes and our words, our actions and our priorities. Father, we want so much... For the world to see the hope that Christ has given us. So, Father, today as we have gathered in this time, help us to lay aside any cares of life that we may have brought with us. Help us in this moment to be focused upon you and upon your word. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and and let him give us ears to hear and hearts that would obey. And, Father, let your word be living and active in our lives today. Father, let your word give hope instead of despair. Let your word give strength where there is weakness. Let your word give encouragement where there is discouragement. Let your word bring conviction where there is a need. Father, whatever... We need in our lives today, let your spirit and your word work together to make that come to pass. That God, when we leave here today, we would be more like Jesus than we were when we came. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this day. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The world had long waited for a Savior to come. The promise was given in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a Savior who would come into the world and would crush the head of the serpent. As time in the Old Testament goes on, we learn more and more about this guy. There's one prophecy in particular that gives us an idea of when this time would come. Toward the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph, or Israel, I'm sorry, is sitting up and he's preparing to die and he is prophesying over all of his children. And when he comes to Judah, he makes this statement, which seems obscure at the time. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, till Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Um, I have no idea if they understood what that was to mean. Um, But what it meant was that eventually Judah would be the one that would rise up from among the people of Israel and he would be the king. The promise in this prophecy is that Judah, a descendant of Judah, would reign on the throne of Israel until the time for Jesus or the Messiah, the promised one, to come. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that their first king of Israel was of the tribe of Benjamin. But he was a failed king. He was replaced by God, by King David, who was of the tribe of Judah. David died. He passed on the kingdom to his son, Solomon. Solomon then was 
also a good king. He passed it on to his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam, on the other hand, was not a good king. Rehoboam, on the other hand, did things God had said not to do. And because of partly because of Solomon's actions, partly because of Rehoboam's pride, the kingdom was divided. Half went to what was called Israel or Samaria. The other half went to be called Judah. Now, the line of Judah was always ruled by a descendant of David. Even in the times where they were conquered, the conquering kings would set up a governor over Judea, over Jerusalem and the others. And always that king or that that governor that was set up was a descendant of David and thus a descendant of Judah. When we get to the New Testament times, we get to the Gospels, the world is different. Rome has conquered and Rome has conquered in such a way that they are expressing their absolute rule over the kingdom. And by their absolute rule over the kingdom, they have completely dethroned the descendants of Judah. They have put someone of their choosing as king over the area. The, the descendants of David have virtually no influence as far as the world is concerned. They are not the governors. They are not the kings. They are not people of power and of influence. Now, from, from the world's perspective, just from Israel's perspective, this seemed to be a hopeless situation. This seemed to be the worst case scenario. In fact, it was just, it was kind of a place where they were despondent. Right? The, the period from Malachi to the Gospels is called the silent period because in that time frame of three or four hundred years, there were no true prophets of God. There was no word from the Lord. During all of this time, it appeared to the Israelites that, that God had fully and completely abandoned them, that the promises would fail, that their hopes were in vain. And so they were just sort of trudging along at this period. What they didn't know was that all of this was according to God's plan, that God was setting things up in such a way that he would send his promised Messiah, the, the savior of the world to come. Now, when you get to verses eight through 14, that has to be like the the greatest child announcement in the history of the world. The angels come, they go to shepherds, and they announce to them that the, the Savior of the world has come, the descendant of King David. And what the angels are in fact telling them is their hope was not unfounded. Their hope was genuine. Their hope was good that God was going to do all the things that he had said he was going to do. Now, when they saw the angels, they were afraid, as they have been. And, and all of the stories that we've looked at, that when people saw the angels, they were afraid. And the angels told them, take courage. Do not be afraid. And then they told them that their hope has come to pass. What I want us to learn from this is that we must take courage and live in hope. That we must take courage and live in hope. The world isn't always going to be a good place. There are always going to be things that are disappointing or distressing or difficult or hard. But because Jesus has come, because the Messiah has been born, the Savior is in the world. What we must do is take courage and live in hope. But what does it look like? I mean, that's an easy thing to say, but what does it look like to take courage and to live in hope. There are three ways that this passage teaches us to live. If we're going to take courage and live in hope. First, be confident in the sovereignty of Jesus. Be confident in the sovereignty of Jesus. Now, I like 
kind of that thought because this passage, especially with the first, it doesn't look like God is sovereign. In fact, just again from an earthly perspective, it looks like God has completely lost control. His people have been conquered by a pagan government. This pagan government rules them ruthlessly. This pagan government imposes unjust taxes upon them. This pagan government has chosen someone to rule over his people and his kingdom that is not a part of the lineage that he has chosen to be his king. This pagan government has so much power over God's people that they don't even let the high priest rule as he is supposed to. You know, if you know the Old Testament, the high priest, once someone was elected or chosen to be the high priest, they were in that position until a certain period of time. And then once they lived out their faithfulness and had done it for all that time, they were taken off and somebody else was chosen. Well, Rome had decided that if someone lived as a high priest for as long as he was supposed to, he would have way more power and influence than Rome wanted him to have. So every few years, Rome just arbitrarily said, you're not the high priest anymore. And they picked who was going to be next. The worship of Almighty God was not so much in the hands of his priest as it was in the hands and and under the whim of a pagan king. But we know that the time has come for the Savior to come into the world. But even with that, we find a bit of a problem. God has chosen uh, an engaged couple to to be the parents of the Savior that was coming into the world. But we see in these early verses that they are living in, in Nazareth, in Judea, or Nazareth, in Galilee. And that doesn't seem like much of a problem, except the Old Testament book of Micah says that the Savior is supposed to be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was about a hundred miles away from Galilee, from Nazareth, where they were. And in our day, we don't think much about it being a hundred miles. A hundred miles doesn't seem like that far. Caitlin, how far did you drive to come to Gaiman this week? Easily a hundred miles? Easily, right? We, we drive like that not, not without even thinking about it. We make runs to the city and back in a day. But we have cars that go quite fast. Their primary mode of travel was walking. It took, well, I mean, can you imagine how long would it take to walk a hundred miles? It would be a, quite the journey, especially if you had a pregnant wife in tow. It was not uncommon in this day for people to live and die in the village in which they were born and never to go more than 10 or 15 miles away from their home. So. Here's the problem. The Savior is supposed to come, but pagans rule with an iron fist over the people of God. The Savior is supposed to come, but the mother of the Messiah is living a hundred miles away from Bethlehem. And for, I mean, there's not just any reason she's just going to be up like, let's go visit Bethlehem. Let's go to the Christmas market there. There's no reason for them to go. But what seems like a problem from human perspective is really an opportunity from God. Because God does something that is almost unthinkable. God demonstrates His sovereignty by having a pagan king give a decree. And the pagan king's decree is that everyone needs to go back to the town of their ancestry in order to be registered. Now, the registry was basically to be done so they could have a better idea of how many people there were. 
so they could tax them more to make sure they're getting all of their blood money out of them. But God works in a pagan king's heart, causing him to issue a decree that results in Joseph and Mary having to go back to the place of Joseph's ancestry, which is Bethlehem. And God works it in such a way that the journey, however long it took, the arrival, the registration, all of that happened. And at just the right time, the Savior was born in exactly the place he was supposed to be born at. I mean, this is all. None of this was coincidental. None of this was accidental. None of this was, gosh, what? How cool was that that it just happened to work out? All of this was the sovereign hand of God orchestrating events to accomplish his will in the world. You and I, we must learn to be confident in God's absolute sovereignty and his ability to accomplish his will no matter what. Because there are going to be times where things are bad. There are going to be times where things are out of our control. There are going to be times where we don't understand and we can't see an end and we can't fathom how this could ever work out in any way but terrible. But our God is greater than our circumstances and our God is greater than the issues that are going on in our life. And he is always, always at work. Now, I think for many of us, trusting God's sovereignty in this way is going to require a shift in our thinking. Not because we don't believe in God's sovereignty, but because we only find comfort in God's sovereignty when good things happen. Uh, we, God is sovereign and that is comforting when we hit a patch of ice and slide off the road, but nobody gets hurt. God is sovereign and that is comforting when we have an unexpected bill come up, but we also unexpectedly find money we didn't know we had. God is sovereign, and that sovereignty is comforting when there's a bad situation in the world that miraculously works out for our good. But what happens when the bad situation just gets worse? What happens when the sickness doesn't improve? What happens if the prayer you pray, the answer from God isn't yes? Is God still sovereign then? Is that sovereignty still a comfort then? See, that's, that's the shift. God isn't only sovereign when good things happen in our lives. And he doesn't lose control when bad things seem to happen in our lives. God is as sovereign in the good times as he is in the bad times. And the bad times are always going to come. You're thinking, man, I came to church to hear that things are always going to be bad. But that's just the world we live in. There's nothing we can do. There's no amount of faith we can have, no amount of goodness that we can live to avoid hardships and troubles and trials. Things beyond our control will always stress us out at one time or another. And how we handle it, how we deal with it, whether or not we're able to, to push through it, will often depend on whether or not we can be confident God is sovereign. God said His Son would come into the world thousands of years before this. Hundreds of years before this, He said 
he would be born of a virgin. Hundreds of years before this, he said he would be born of the tribe of David. Hundreds of years before this, he said he would be born in Bethlehem. And God did exactly what he said would happen. Jesus has come. And so we can take courage and live in hope. Because his coming demonstrates that he is sovereign over all things. Be confident in the sovereignty of God. Secondly, be bold with the gospel of Jesus. Jesus came. and He came to bring salvation. And when he left... He tasked his people, you and I, to go make disciples of all nations. To be his witnesses and all over the world, where we are and all over the world. And the church has always understood that this was the primary mission of the church. To lead people to follow Jesus. But in recent years, the world has tried to make us ashamed. The world has tried to make us believe that what we're doing in helping people come to know Jesus is a bad thing. That we're oppressing them, that we're harming them, and that there's all kinds of things wrong with what we're doing. And the danger really isn't that the world believes that. The danger is when they convince us that those things are true. The danger is when the world convinces us that we're harming people by sharing the gospel. That we're oppressing people by sharing the gospel. That is the danger. But this passage, it should give us a, a new light and a new way to understand sharing the gospel. Because the angel tells them in verse 10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And in that sentence, we learn three powerful and important truths about the gospel. First, the gospel is good news. Make no mistake, the gospel is good. The gospel is the good news, not the bad news. The gospel is good. Right? Get that in your mind, that when we talk to people about Jesus, we are telling them the best good news the world has ever known. In verse 11, it tells us that the message is about Jesus, for there is... Born to you in this day a city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right? When we are sharing the gospel, the key is to keep the focus on Jesus. Because it's ultimately Jesus that matters. Our, our opinions don't matter. Our politics don't matter. So many other things that we want to matter, they don't matter. What matters is Jesus. Listen, there will be people that go to heaven that disagree with our politics. And there'll be people that go to hell that agree with our politics. And there'll be people that go to heaven that disagree with our opinions. And there'll be people that go to hell that agree with our opinions. Because that's not what matters. What matters is Jesus. More than anything, what people need from us is they need our Jesus. And Jesus is good news. And he's good news because the gospel, it also brings great joy. The, the way the gospel brings great joy is that it answers the greatest need that we have. The greatest need that we have is how do we deal 
with our sin. Not because the, the truth is, the, we, we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. There is a standard of right. There is a standard of wrong. And no person has fully lived up to that standard. None of us have. And that leaves us under the guilt of sin. And the guilt of sin isn't that I feel bad about it. Someone can be guilty of sin and not feel bad. How we feel ultimately doesn't matter. Guilt in the biblical sense is more of a judicial thing. You are guilty because you have sinned. Now, that in and of itself, that's not the good news. If we stop there, we don't bring any good news of great joy. The good news is that Jesus came to take our sin and our shame and our punishment. See, our sin, it it earned a wage. That wage is death. But the death of sin isn't merely physically dying. Because that sin was against the almighty God of heaven. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is a stiff punishment for telling the King of kings and the Lord of lords that you don't have to do the things that He wants you to do. That you don't have to live in the way that He wants you to live. And so... There is a wage, there is a sin, there is a punishment for it. But Jesus came and He lived the life we couldn't live. He, he never sinned. He never violated the law. Despite the fact that He did all the things that God wanted Him to do, He was rejected by His people. He was put upon a cross and He was murdered in our place. But the physical death on the cross wasn't the hardest thing that he endured. The hardest thing that Jesus endured was the fact that all of our sin and all of our guilt was poured out upon him. And he took he took the penalty that you and I deserved. And when he had fully paid our debt, he cried out, "It is finished." And he gave up the ghost. And he was laid in the tomb. And again, just that Jesus died and was put in a tomb isn't good news in and of itself. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, it proves that what he had said was true. It proves that he is the son of God who died for the sins of the world. And there is great joy in knowing that our sins can be forgiven. There is great joy in knowing that our sins can be taken away. That we, can, that we don't have to try to be good enough. That we don't have to try to do enough. That it doesn't matter what family we were born to, what nationality we're from. Because of Jesus, the guilt and the punishment of our sins can be taken away. We can have a, a life-changing relationship with the God of the Bible that will guide us in this life and take us to be with Him in the next. That, that is good news of great joy. But it's good news of great joy for all people. The gospel is for all people. One of the aspects that we might miss if we're not careful about this passage is that the angels brought this first message to shepherds. Now, as modern believers, we don't think much about that. Scripture often paints a positive view of shepherds. In in the Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd that leads us by still waters and through the dark valleys of death. In the New Testament, Jesus is the good shepherd that knows us and that speaks to us and allows us to follow Him. 
pastors are often called shepherds. And so Scripture often paints a positive view of shepherds. But Scripture's view of a shepherd is not their view of a shepherd. Shepherds were not good people. Shepherds were the ultimate in in low-class living. They were often criminals. They Well, they lived with sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so they probably didn't smell all that nice. They they basically took the job because they couldn't get anything else. No one else would hire them. No one else would help them. They were society's outcasts. And yet when God sent His Son into the world and made the announcement, He sent the angels to them to say, Savior is born. The principle we learn from this is that the gospel is for all people. It is for all nations. It is for all races. It is for all people, period. And again, that's a part of the reason it's good news that brings great joy. The message of the gospel is that all people are invited to come to God through Jesus Christ. Regardless of their family, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their religion. Muslims are invited to come to God through Jesus Christ. Buddhists are invited to come to God through Jesus Christ. All people, regardless of the sinful life that they've lived, all people are invited to come to God through Jesus Christ. And this allows us to have great hope as we try to talk to people about Jesus. When we go out this week, every person we see is going to be someone for whom Christ died. Every person we come into contact with is going to be someone that can come to God through Jesus Christ. They are invited. They are welcomed. They are wanted. God desires their salvation. And when we talk to them... We are telling them a good news that if they embrace it, it brings great joy. Now, let me, let me kind of take a rabbit trail here and, and soapbox a minute. Is it possible that the reason we don't understand that it's good news that brings great joy is because we are basically joyous, joyless Christians? I mean, has your relationship with Jesus been good news that brings you great joy? Do you live a life of joy? I think often that will skew our view. If you have received good news when you knew about Jesus and it has brought great joy into your life, then you can't help but feel that way when you go to share it with other people. That's the way it's meant to be. The Christian life isn't meant to be a burden, but a blessing. It's not meant to bring us down, but to lift us up. There is meant to be joy. The fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. As we live at His right hand. If you're a believer and you don't experience that, the problem, my friend, is you. You need to figure out what's wrong. But as we go out, We can live in hope and share the gospel confidently, boldly. Because what we're doing is the best good we can possibly do in our world. We are telling good news that when it's embraced brings great joy. 
And there is never a person we'll come into contact with that is not invited to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we can be confident in the sovereignty of Jesus, be bold, the gospel of Jesus, and finally, be passionate in my worship of Jesus. Verse 13 and 14, the heavenly host first burst out singing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Now, does anyone believe that they were going, glory to God in the highest, oh, peace and goodwill towards men? I mean, is, does anyone think that's what they were doing? Or, or later... When the the shepherds returned in verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. Do we think they were sort of half hearted about the process? Don't you think they were likely pretty passionate about what they were doing? I think it should make good sense to us that our worship of Jesus should be passionate. Because, again, let's think about what we're talking about. We sinned. We blew it. We sinned against the God of heaven who had every right to to punish us for all of eternity. But instead, he chose to come in the form of a baby, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again on the third day, to send his Holy Spirit to call us to come to him. And when we receive that call, to forgive our sins, to put His Holy Spirit within us, to give us a hope and peace and joy and love. And I think that, that should make us passionate. That should make us people that are bold and passionate in our worship of Jesus. That lukewarm, half-hearted worship. And that just won't do in our worship of Almighty God. As I was thinking about being passionate in our worship, one of the reasons I think we should be passionate is because the day will come when everyone... I mean, it's not just... Jesus isn't just King because we believe. And He isn't just the Savior because we say He is. He's the Savior because He is. And the day will declare it. There will come a point when, when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is highly exalted and given a name that's above every name. And there is a day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way I think about this. For us. Is that we understand the day will come when Jesus will be revealed. Again, the world right now doesn't largely understand what we're doing. Even just coming out on a Christmas day. And not just staying home in our pajamas and eating pancakes. But. The day is going to come. But it's going to prove that we. We were right. This wasn't a waste. Our service to Him wasn't a failure. Our faith in Him wasn't foolish. 
every every eye will behold him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The certainty of that, man, it should absolutely lead us to be passionate in our worship of Jesus. He he deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. He deserves that we would be wholehearted and all in as we worship him. And so when we gather as a church and we sing songs of praise, our hope is seen in our passionate, fervent, God-glorifying worship of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you today, do you have do you have hope? Do you live in hope or do you live in hopelessness? And if there is no hope, are you content to stay in that place? Are you content to live in that way? Or are you ready to embrace the Messiah, the Savior that came to die for your sins, rose again and is calling you to come to himself? To let him forgive you of your sins, cause you to become a different person, to purify your heart, put his spirit within you and give you a hope that is greater than anything this world has to offer. There is hope. There's a powerful hope. And it can be all of ours if we come through faith in Jesus. Let's stand.